This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Today's show is about the Living Wonders Project. It introduces you to Indigenous academic Jacqueline Troy, who talks about the snow country, and Christine Carlisle, who is president of Ecosec, that's the Environment Council of Central Queensland. It's a show we produced last year when Tanya Plibersek was the new Environment Minister and Australia had voted overwhelmingly for climate action. Since then, the Environment Minister, Plibersek, has been taken to the federal court. The judgment came through just now and Christine Carlisle is here to tell us what happened. I'm delighted to see you again, Christine. What an ordeal for you. What did Plibersek say in court? Well, Vivian, in, in court, the um, representatives for the minister said that the reasons she handed down for, you know, approving those coal mines, the Narrabri and the Mount Pleasant, were based on what we call the drug dealer's defence. So that's um, an argument that if we don't supply this coal, someone else in the in the world will and that there would be no net <clears throat> change in in the amount of carbon emissions so that was what the thrust of her main argument as to why it didn't matter if these if these coal mines were allowed to proceed our argument of course was opposite uh, to that we we think that every mine matter matters and every emission matters Yes. Well, do you mean to say that two coal companies had a barrister in court defending Tanya Plibersek's right to approve their coal mines? Yes, quite ironic, isn't it, that the Environment <laughs> Minister was on the same side as the coal companies in this situation. And the coal companies also supported the Minister's argument in court. Well, I think it's very revealing and it brings them out of the shadows for once. Yesterday, Justice McElwain dismissed your case, saying it was up to Parliament. So what do you make of that? Yes, um, I, our arguments were compelling and the judge certainly considered them very carefully. I, I think that part is true. But, you know, we have to be, well, we are respectful of the decision of the court it's why we went to court to have an adjudication on this on this matter but the judge came down pretty much saying the law is the problem and we need stronger environmental laws now we we always need stronger environmental laws but within the law as it's contained at the moment it requires that the minister consider the harms to the matters of national environmental significance. And climate change is the greatest harm of all, and it's not being considered. So, 
you know, the, it, it was a very mixed judgment. The, the judge thought some of our arguments were very good, but in that very final point, he did consider that it's the law that needs changing. Well, well, look, Whitehaven's Narrabri mine is already leaking three times the climate changing methane it declared in court, three times more than it said it what it was doing. According, this is according to Michael Slezak in the ABC yesterday. So, what would be the impact on the Great Barrier Reef and our other living wonders if all that coal from those two mines is exported and burned? right through to the 2040s? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to be devastating, uh, Vivian. We consider that our climate is resilient, that it will always bounce back, but we're very rapidly reaching these tipping points where there will be such a substantial amount of uh, coral bleached on the Great Barrier Reef that it's unable to bounce back. And uh, I, I know the Minister has put a lot of effort into clearing the water, uh, you know, from runoff that runs into the Great Barrier Reef with from agriculture or industry or, or even housing and, and opening mm. up land and all that sort of thing. So she's trying hard to do that. But the waters are still getting hotter and hotter. So... It won't matter to the reef if it's boiling in clean water or dirty water. It'll yeah. still be too hot. Oh, yeah, that's right. And all those other living wonders, because this is a listeners, you'll hear, you'll hear in this program, listeners, how wonderful this living wonders resume of all the beautiful things that are very fragile in our world. The government plans to reform the Environment Protection Act. They've said they'll do that by the end of this year, but it will be a battle to get the climate trigger in there. Greens have got a climate trigger in the Senate at the moment, but, you know, I think that's going to be a battle. Can you and Environmental Justice Australia, can you take this case to court, to a higher court? Are you planning to do that or are you considering that? Well, we, we are in discussion about things like that, Vivian. We um, immediately after the, after the decision was handed down, um, we did... We have had a couple of huddles uh, just to see what what are our options. And we're fairly committed to uh, continuing to fight this battle. Uh, if we can't, if, if, if the Environment Minister is allowing, you know, these mining companies to create havoc in our environment, we, we need to keep fighting for it. So we, we need, we've only got this one beautiful world. Mm. It, once, once we destroy it, we don't get it back. So it's a, it's a worthy battle and our group is certainly up for it. Well, I admire you. What, are, what has been the personal effect on you and the, you know, the Lord, <laughs> all the allies in the conservation movement? It's a long battle. Um, you're quite right to mention all our allies in the conservation movement. It's an absolutely marvellous movement. Um, and we've been doing it for many, many years now. It it does take its toll. People are feeling very frustrated that we're not seeing the substantial gains that we should be seeing. It 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 look really should not be up to a little group such as ours from central Queensland to be 
taking the Environment Minister to court and having her representatives on the same side as the mining industry. It's not... We, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that there's something not quite right. And it's that scandalous. I heard it on the BBC News overnight. So it's a scandal. This is, you know, we're worried about if we vote no or if we vote yes, you know, what's the international implications. But all of this climate stuff, that plays very badly in France and Europe. And, you know, BBC's reporting this as, oh, shock, you know, this court decision. Yes. Well, well, I agree with the BBC. I think it's shocking as well. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's a shocking situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah, well, it's not the end of the story. And it's a nerve-wracking game. And, Christine, I must say, I just want to say to you before the listeners, I admire your courage and poise because you've just flown down to Melbourne. You've been there for this piffling decision and you live in Queensland. So, you know, you're travelling and putting your all into this. And the case dramatises for me the grip that coal and gas still has on our government so your Living Wonders project makes it clear what's at stake. So thank you very much for all your work and, and have a rest now, but I'm sure we'll hear from you again. Thanks, Vivian. I'd just like to say it's not really about me, whether I feel I, tired or not. It's, no. The fight is greater than a single person and it's our whole organisation and, and the movement. And the minister just has that one job to protect the environment. That is her job and yeah. we want her to do that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Christine. Thanks, Vivian. The Climate Action Show is taking you tonight to the Living Wonders Project. We will hear later from Christine Carlisle in Queensland, who is the client of Environmental Justice Australia's Holly Kerwin. And they are taking Tanya Plibersek, our new Environment Minister, asking her to reconsider 19 of the gas and coal projects on her desk. It's a fork in the road. And to guide us towards the right path, I have Ngarigu woman, Professor Jacqueline Troy from Sydney University. So welcome, Jacqueline. It's the first time I've met you. But let's start with you telling us why you are a friend of the Living Wonders Project. Oh, thank you, Vivian. Well, I, um, as an Aboriginal person, Ngarigu person of the Snow Mountains in southeastern Australia, I feel that, um, you know, my country particularly is called a living national treasure really it's a it's an a unique um biosphere biome for alpine areas and every part of it just it does sort of strike awe and wonder in in me every time I go there I mean I, I've been going there and um staying for long periods of time since I was very small and it's a a place that it so sounds so hackneyed, but the majesty of the mountains, you know, the the sort of awesome vistas as you look out across my country and all the way across to other people's countries, right? You can see almost down to the south coast. You can see across into Nunawal country and Canberra and Wiradjuri country even beyond. It's just a, you know, it's the highest part of Australia. And it's, um, for us, it's not a resource it's a it's a place that's in our hearts and our souls and we are permanently connected to it so we are part of it as a living we are the living organisms as well that are a part of this living environment we think every stone every grain of sand everything has its own life force that is our belief system as aboriginal people so 
it's you know literally a living wonder well as a linguist i know you're upset about the loss of indigenous languages here and everywhere in the world they also are living wonders and you've done a lot to help restore the national curriculum with indigenous language capacity and I'd like you to tell us about, I saw on the internet a photo of you in the snow, and <laughs> I'd like you to tell us about this song, the Snow Increase song. I know there are many Indigenous people who do water, you know, trying to <clears throat> call the water, call the rain, and I think the Snow Increase song, could you tell us about that and maybe could you even sing it? Sure. So our our people, of course, are people of snow and ice, um, so we're the ice mob. Um, people get called saltwater, freshwater, desert mobs, or, um, we're ice mobs. So um, it, the idea of an increased ceremony is something that um, Aboriginal people do all across Australia to make sure that something keeps going, you know, that um, things that are meant to happen continue to happen. And that's our way of engaging actively with the environment and with things that are meant to happen with plants and animals, insects, reptiles, everything the air, the ground, everything, to make sure that everything is cared for. And some communities, of course, are responsible for things that are particular, very particular to their own environment. And for us, it would be snow. This is, you know, my interpretation of, of how we are as people and building on historical records that fortunately we have very few for my country, but there are records. And one of the things that... Um, has been left to us is um, a song that was um, documented by a man called John Lotsky who came through my country in late March in well he was traveling through my country for some months but he seems to have settled one night under a full moon on the banks of the snowy river near Dalgetty at a place called Mutong and um, <clears throat> he listened to women and men participating in singing a song that he called the song of the women of the Manaru. And um, a, a musicologist um, friend of mine from the University of Sydney as well, Linda Barwick, um, and I worked together to try and understand what this song might have been. And we brought to it, uh, I guess, my own cultural knowledge and feeling for country um, and Linda's um, understanding of how Aboriginal music works in general. Um, and when she sort of cleaned all the Europeanness out of this song that um, Lotsky and his his friends who were musicians had written it down um, and scored it and they'd made it like a parlor music piece, a kind mm -hmm. of quite Europeanized piece. So Linda took all that kind of European flourish out of it out of it, if you like. And then I looked at and I looked at the text and the the music actually gives me some clues about how the the, the words might have been broken up. So even though there was very the, the the there wasn't really a translation with the song itself, there was just this text. There are word lists by people like Robinson, the famous Robinson, who was infamous, I should say, from <laughs> um, Tasmania for what he did to Tasmanian Aboriginal people. But he was up in our country in New South Wales as well, and he left word lists for my language. And there are some key words like kunama, meaning snow. Um, the word gaba for moon and, um, you know, other things that we know about how the language works. And I was able to use that, this, you know, scant information, but sufficient to give me clues. So between a sort of cultural interpretation, a feeling for country, Linda's understanding of how the music itself worked, 
I was able to piece together um, what looks like um, a song where the people, are, women, are calling out to the moon, and it was under the full moon. Glotsky made note of that, um, calling out to the moon to bring the snow. So bring it back, bring the snow. And, of course, we know that you wouldn't have an alpine environment without the snow. You need the snow that, that saturates these, you know, alpine bogs. Um, then there's the runoff into the Great Snowy River, which is tragically um, dammed and controlled now through the snowy hydro schemes. But, you know, this this water and the snow and the ice keep that environment going and all the way downstream into the great um, Murray-Darling Basin area. So, you know, we were responsible for making sure that that great flow of water and that freezing conditions every year continues. And we've sung it two years in a row now, last year and then this year in April, on the spot where the song was sung. We're pretty sure that's where it was down at this bend of the river, the Snowy River. And each time there's been record dumps of snow. This year is even bigger. So I'm looking forward to at some point getting skis on powder this year. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Listeners were invited last week uh, by Richard Swain to care for country and he said look we live like aliens here and we must all take responsibility. Would you tell us what climate change is already doing in the snowy country and what more <clears> coal <throat> gas projects would do? I mean this is what we're asking Tanya Plibersek to prevent. Well, maybe I could start with the coal and gas because in many ways that is a key problem for all our environments. Um, we all know now, we, nobody has to debate it anymore. It's very obvious that the more we burn carbon, the more coal is burnt. Um, and even removing the coal from the ground in the first place and then, you know, doing all the things we do with coal um, is is damaging right from the beginning. You know, this extractivism, mining under people's land and to remove coal, um, causing the land to subside, um, but then to remove it and to burn it and um, to add all that carbon into the atmosphere. I was talking to my wonderful, intelligent, beautiful daughter last <laughs> night who's studying environment and sustainability at ANU and she was saying, you know, mummy, actually it has to be warm to snow, which is true. <laughs> Um, it, ha it can't be too cold or it won't snow. We always know, oh, yeah, when you've got a drip on the end of your nose and you <laughs> see the brown clouds mm. and it's just warm and quiet, then you know the snow is coming down. It's a beautiful feeling. And um, I'm absolutely with Richard when he says we're living like aliens in our environment because how many people even know that? Even people who are skiers and who love the snow, how many people are really connected to that country? So... You know, so it, you know, we're getting all this wonderful snowfall, but the it will again eventually get to a point where the world will be so cold, it will freeze over and there won't be any snow. It'll just be a frozen wasteland. This is potentially where we're heading is to a great freeze where nothing can survive, nothing. And none of the ecosystems that we understand as as our world will exist anymore. We will have altered it so much that it can never recover. So in the high country right now, and again, I, I really love the way Richard said, I mean, he's such a connected to the environment man. He's a Radri man who lives in my country, who just feels connected to it. You know, this is his sensibility. And he gently glides down the rivers and shows people the, our beautiful country and talks gently about 
how we should live in it. And that's how I feel as well. I take people to my country and my own community. We come together and now we sing our snow song. We've got a couple of other songs we're working on as well that are historical documents that have come down to us that connect us, engage us with country, you know, just by understanding it and knowing it, you can feel the changes going on. And um, the the mountains have been so altered by having animals grazing on them for so long that even though we've now removed all the heavy grazing stock like cattle and sheep from the high country, there are areas that still have not recovered and won't recover without human intervention. We have to do replanting. And we're still doing this. Snowy Hydro is destroying great tracts of country. Um, they blew up my entire valley, Lobs Hole, which is Ravine and Lobs Hole are my family's core country. Um, and I believe in renewable energy, don't get me wrong, and Snowy Hydro wants to work with us as well as Narugu people. But it's just we cannot go on destroying these places. Once, once we alter one biosphere, it has a knock-on effect for every other. And this is what every time we burn coal and and we use natural gas as well, we release the gas from the ground and we burn it into our atmosphere. Uh, look, I'm sitting here now with my heating on and it's gas. Mm -hmm. And if I had an alternative, I would be using it. Um, we just can't go on filling our atmosphere with, with um, our own pollutants. Um, the earth had locked all this into its structure the the country had preserved all this um toxic product you know the carbon it had preserved it's locked into the ground and we are releasing it it's like opening pandora's box yeah. and all these natural wonders of the world living wonders will be suffocated and frozen over eventually and we none of us will exist anymore yeah well, listeners, we're speaking to Professor Jacqueline Troy, and I'd like to read a bit from the Living Wonders report, a little bit about the Snowy Mountains area. It's a wonderful report because it's so clearly written. It's accessible to anyone. If you're 14 years old and you're a student you know, climate act activist, you could look up this website and find exactly the places you're interested in or the species you're interested in. And this one's about the Alps. It says... The Alps are also home to unique cold climate adapted plants and animals, from alpine daisies to snow gums, and from mountain pygmy possums to migratory bogong moths. Due to their high peaks and seasonal <clears throat> snow, the Australian Alps strongly influence the hydrology of Eastern Australia. We heard about that last week from Richard. The Alps contribute significant quantities of snow melt to the river systems of Eastern Australia and the water retention properties of the bog and fen communities in the area play an integral role in regulating water flow to river systems. Past Aboriginal social gatherings based on moth feasting, the bog bogong moths, were unique to the Alps. Jackie, would you tell us, do you think First Nations people have something unique to teach us? Richard said we have to learn, we have to stop being so ignorant and so alien something unique to teach us as we slowly realise that we are really threatened by all this coal and gas exporting and burning. The key thing is actually love country, really feel you are part of it. You know, we, we share all the same makeup. We're made of the same things as everything around us. And so anything we do to the environment will immediately impact on us as well. And that's what 
our key learning is, I think, from Indigenous thinking worldwide, is if you disrespect country, then it can't care for you. If you don't care for country, it can't care for you anymore. And you'll end up with absolutely nowhere to live. There's There will be no place for humans at all anymore because we will have destroyed everything that sustains us. We need to breathe the air. We need to drink the water. We need to, we are mostly made up of water, you know. <laughs> so for us as water people, um, you know, our country, as you were just saying, is responsible for the the flow, the melt. You know, the snow comes, there's a great melt, and it flows down into the river systems below us. And, you know, the the, the pastures and the, the plants in the mountains, they filter the atmosphere as well. You know, they contribute to the clean air that we breathe. There's nothing like being up in those mountains, standing up on the top of those mountains, on the top of the world. My mother and our family have always said, you can touch the sky when you're in those mountains. You just reach up and touch the sky. And so that that feeling of connectedness with country and treating it respectfully in the way that you treat your own body respectfully, you should. And you treat other members of your community respectfully. And all the animals and the birds and the reptiles and the insects that live in that country treat them respectfully as well. The Bogong moth sustained not only our community, but many neighbouring communities who would get together for these big feasts. And they were a time, you know, the snow song was sung just at the end of the season. You know, the moth season was sort of from sort of September through till, you know, late spring, spring through till late summer, early autumn, you know, and that's that was a time when people would get together, people would come from everywhere. Our own people stayed up in the mountains and um, lived through the winters in the sheltered valleys that we um, inhabited. And, you know, we knew every part of our um of the of the environment that we lived in. We knew where to live and how to live. We knew how to take animals and birds and other things, plants from the environment to eat. We didn't just holus bolus destroy an area and expect somehow to continue to live the great lifestyles that we had. Um, this is the same for the world now. You can't live in your city and think, well, it doesn't really matter to me what's going on down in the mountains, or it doesn't matter to me about people extracting coal and gas. That's actually helping my lifestyle. It's not helping your lifestyle if it's not sustainable. And that's the key message is that everything is in a symbiotic relationship. Everything is in the same cycle together. We're all made of all the same stuff and we start destroying everything around us. We won't be able to survive. The, the thrust of the Living Wonders Project is to give the Environment Minister irrefutable evidence. You know, you've explained it, so I wish she could talk to you because, you know, this might be a, the kind of conversation would help her along the way. But this project gives her a lot of evidence that we are going down the wrong path if she approves any more coal and gas. With that thought in mind that the snowy will see drastic changes as the snow cover decreases and the weeds and invasive species start migrating up, you know, to better pastures for them. What do you want to say to Tanya Plibersek? We can stop some of this now. As I said, you can, with human intervention, we can reforest the areas that have been deforested and we can protect the alpine meadows. We need to get all the feral animals out of the high country we need to stop all this extractive industry and we need to think about coal and gas in particular 
as one of the most damaging extractive industries we're engaged in. There are so many better alternatives. Wind power, solar power, these are the future. Okay, thank you very much. I'd just like to say something to your students, you know, before you go. If any of your students or people in the university would like to contribute to the Climate Action radio show, we really would like to give much more of a platform to Indigenous people and also younger people to talk about their country or their take on climate action because our listeners need to have a broad view and, and they're, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. So we've been speaking to Professor Jacqueline Troy, Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research at Sydney University in the Department of Linguistics. Thank you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yaru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. we're going to hear is by Tambar Project and thank you to them for our song. If we stop the fearing, we'll be unstoppable. This is our star. I know it's been hard. You're not alone. This is our star. Wonders website is a vault of information on the climate impact of 19 coal and gas projects. Proposals for these 19 projects are sitting on the desk of Tanya Plibersek, Minister for the Environment, right now. The dramatic question is how can she approve a new gas or coal project if she digs into this vault of living wonders and sees the climate disruptions caused by more coal and gas? There's a small group up in Queensland called the Environment Council of Central Queensland, and they've started a legal intervention under a rarely used section of the national environment laws to ask Tanya Plibersek to reconsider these 19 proposed projects. Through their lawyers at the Enviro Justice Australia, they have made it easy for the minister to access scientific research, and much of that research has already been paid for by the government. We will speak to Christine Carlisle, President of the Queensland Environment Council of Central Queensland, and to Holly Kerwin from Enviro Justice Australia. But listeners, before we start, please look up the website of Living Wonders. If you are campaigning against any of the 19 projects um, that are on the Environment Minister's desk right now, it is such a handy resource for you and the link will be on the podcast after this show. So let's start with Christine. Um, tell us where you are in Queensland and what got you moving to start this legal intervention? 
So um, the, as you've said, the Environment Council of Central Queensland, um, we call ourselves EcoSec for short. Um, we, we originally formed that in Central Queensland when it became clear that uh, there was large areas of, um, of our environment that didn't have uh, an environmental group speaking up for them, you know, for all the species that are mentioned in the, the website, as, you, as you've said, Vivian. Um, so we, we formed a, a group and uh, we've been campaigning, I suppose, and providing advocacy for environmental issues since uh, for the last eight or nine years. We're part of a, a larger environmental uh, community, I suppose, um, which overlap on some areas, but um, yes. Just to situate the listeners, a lot of them are in Melbourne and Sydney. Tell us where you are now, mm. like what's the weather like and what are the kind of um, projects around you that might have got you going on this? Yes, so I'm in Brisbane at the moment, which is the <laughs> capital of Queensland. But um, just a short time ago, for most of my life, really, I've been living up in, up in central Queensland. So central Queensland... Uh, the coastal town um, most closely associated with us is, is Mackay, and that's practically right in the middle on the coast. But the area that we represent is wider than that coastal region. We represent going right across to the Northern Territory border or the South Australian border. Um, Queensland will have various environmental groups. Most of them run along the coast. So we really wanted to speak up for those in the inland. So. Up there in central Queensland, it's the heart of coal country uh, in the Bowen Basin, the Surat Basin, uh, and then there was proposals to open up the Galilee Basin. And a lot of your listeners will be aware of the very strong Adani campaign. Uh, that's, you know, the first cab off the rank, I suppose, in the opening up of the Galilee Basin. Adani is not one of the, one of the projects uh, that are the subject of this legal intervention, but just to locate where we might be and, and what, it, what it's like up there. Yeah. Well, many listeners will remember how at one stage it seemed like only the black-throated finch stood in the way of the Adani mine. They call it Bravus now in Australia, but the Carmichael mine but too. Um, I just looked that up this morning to see what the latest thing on that, because we did a show on that, the black-throated finch, and I kept thinking, how can this fragile little creature stand in the way of this massive, you know, international project? But to please conservationists, apparently the finch has now been monitored, its population is falling, and off an offset area was found for it. But I think your focus is somewhat different. It's not like conservationists wanting to preserve the habitat for a species. You're trying to focus on the impact of the coal and gas once it's exported and burned overseas or anywhere. And I wonder if this is going to be something new for the climate minister to think of the climate impact of the um, proposals. Yeah, so just on the black throat of finch, it's possible we're going to be monitoring the extinction of that species in real time. But quite right, Vivian, um, we're bringing a different proposal to the minister on this. So it's no longer just geographically located, the impact on these matters of national environmental significance that the minister is obliged to consider every time a proposal comes before her, she should be considering, or she's legally required to consider how this proposal is going to have, what impact it will have 
on these matters of national environmental significance. Now that's that's a big name, we call it MNES, but they're, they're the things we all know and love and that identify us as Australians that identify the world identifies Australia, things like our koala and our Great Barrier Reef, but not only just those two very charismatic or well-loved icons, but all the other species. And to date, the minister has really only considered the impact of the proposal in that geographical area that the proposal is located in. But we're asking and have provided volumes of scientific evidence of the the impact on global warming, on climate change, will have, if that proposal proceeds, will have on all the matters of national environmental significance that the minister is legally obliged to consider. Yeah, well, um, on the website, listeners, this is called the Living Wonders website. It's an absolute cornucopia of information. Uh, you can read the list of the 19 proposals. There's many more mm. around Australia, but these are these 19 that are at present on uh, Tanya Plibersek's desk. I won't read out the whole list of 19, but just for you listeners, I'd like to tell you the names of some of the companies proposing new coal or gas. Some of them are like extensions of existing mines. Woodside, Whitehaven, Waratah, Glencore, Idemitsu, BHP Billiton, and there's even one called Mac Mines Australia. Uh, the future's not written, as you say on your website, but these are powerful companies. What would you like to say to Tanya Plibersek about the catastrophic impact of all that coal and gas on, say, the Great Barrier Reef or the Tasmanian wilderness or the land near you? Well, I guess I'd say to the Minister that her obligation is not to those uh, companies, powerful and all as they may be, her obligation is to these matters of national environmental significance. That's her legal obligation. And what, what we've done with this intervention is requesting that she reconsiders all of the proposals that you've mentioned have been through a first stage approval, but without considering the climate impact of them on these matters that she's obliged to look at. So she's not obliged at this point to consider anything else about the proposal, how well it will do or what the companies might think about it. It's a very simple task. And that's what we're asking her to do is to go back and reconsider these with a different viewpoint. Well, Tanya Plibersek has made a good impression on me so far, at least in the number of press meetings she's had. You know, she, she sends, I get a list of all the press briefings and she talks all over the place. So she's really said climate is top and centre for her, environment is, you know, hugely important to her, and she's an experienced minister. So what hope do you have for her, you know, just as a person, do you think, from what she said so far? Oh, well, I'd like to say that, um, you know, we've been in discussion with our lawyers for months and months about um, this legal intervention. So that's Environmental Justice Australia. Uh, but it it's not going before Minister Plibersek just because of a change of government, but we're actually very happy that she is the one to receive this intervention because, as you say, Vivian, she, um, she is saying, you know, a lot of the right things. She has a proven record of, um, you know, intelligence and, and integrity. But 
On a, on a slightly different side, we've had all of our environment ministers so far saying, you know, I take my responsibilities very seriously. And I'd like to say it's not what they say, it's what they do. And what we're asking of, of um, Minister Plibersek is that she acts, that she really looks at the overwhelming evidence, a lot of it commissioned by the government that we've put before her um, and, and uh, act you know, do, do what she's required to do. Oh, well, our listeners will be cheering, I'm sure, to hear you say that. Hooray! Now, I'd like to move to Holly Kerwin from Environmental Justice Australia. She's a lawyer. And I'd like, Holly, you could you explain what are you doing for your client? and for all of us. Thanks so much, Vivian. That's right. So Environmental Justice Australia acts for Ecosec. And I guess Ecosec could be be said to be doing this um, for the environment, you know, um, more broadly. But from a legal perspective, what our client has done um, is put before the minister 19 separate applications for what's called reconsideration. And they're using a special provision in the existing environmental law. It's just that it hasn't really ever been used in this way before. And the reconsideration applications ask the minister to think again about that important question that Christine actually identified before. And the important question is, if this proposal was to go ahead, if you were to approve it, what impact could it have on all of those matters of national environmental significance, all those living wonders? And so our client can ask for those reconsiderations because at a point in the past, previous ministers did that analysis. But what our client says to, to this minister is, you should do it again because the previous considerations didn't take into account properly or at all climate change, the reality that fossil fuel driven climate change will have an impact on so many matters of national environmental significance. And also because our client has put before the minister what's called substantial new information, which is kind of like the gateway that our client has to pass through in order to have the minister reconsider things. And so there's a very large body of substantial new information that's now before the minister in support of the reconsideration requests. Where did you get this new information from? What the evidence, the evidence has a number of different layers, I guess. Mm. The first kind of chunk of evidence before the minister now is a number of the most recent globally accepted scientific documents that show, I guess, in plain English for your listeners, the reality of climate change and the reality of where we're at now and what new gas and coal proposals mean for how much warmer the climate will get. And then sort of jumping off from there, then there is a very, very substantial body of evidence, most of which is actually available on that Living Wonders website, because our client Ecosec really thinks it's important to open that information up for the public. And this body of evidence shows what climate change means for each of those individual species and places. So um, using the government's own documents, what do these documents show about climate change as a risk for the koala or for the Great Barrier Reef? After that, there's a body of evidence that shows the impact of the 2019 to 2020 bushfires on almost all of those things like threatened species. Yeah. And then there are some expert reports as well. Wow. So that's been referred to as the vault, I guess. Yeah. 
And you might think, oh, poor Tanya Plibersek, this is just too much for her, you know, these enormous amounts to read, but it's so easy to read. That's what I loved about your website. It's written in such accessible language, which is a mercy to anyone. Look, the <laughs> next question is the media. Look, I'm always aggravated by the media focus. At the moment, they're pestering everybody about 43%, 43%. You know, they always love to just trap people to discuss these piffling targets. But I'm not like that, and our program is never going to focus on that. We like to focus on the exported emissions, hiding in plain sight, it seems to me. And your Living Wonders website shows us something about scope three emissions. I'll read one for you listeners here. They say about Woodside. Woodside proposes to expand the operating life of the onshore and offshore facilities at its northwest shelf extension. I think that's in Western Australia. So it can keep processing gas and liquefied natural gas until 2070. Scope 3 emissions will be approximately 80.19 million tonnes per annum of CO2 equivalent. And I'd like, Holly, could you explain scope 3 emissions and why, Tanya Plibersek, just why won't she just say, well, that's not my responsibility? I spoke to Chris Bowen and I asked him about exported emissions and he said, look, those decisions are made overseas. Yeah, so there's kind, there's kind of this false distinction drawn really about where the fossil fuel is burnt or where the greenhouse gas emission is created. And sometimes people talk about the emissions created from fossil fuels that are ultimately burnt to create energy overseas as being scope three emissions. Sometimes a distinction is drawn between those emissions and emissions that are created in Australia, for example, by a power plant in Australia. What our evidence shows, I guess, is that the Great Barrier Reef doesn't pay any attention to whether or not the coal that is extracted from the mine in central Queensland is burnt in central Queensland or whether it's burnt somewhere else. And that's a really important fact. The second part of your question, Vivian, was about why does why do scope three emissions matter for legal purposes? Yes. Um, and I guess the first thing to say is that ecosex reconsideration applications definitely do include scope three emissions, but they, they're not limited to scope three emissions. So it's greenhouse gas emissions from the projects overall. The important thing legally is that what the minister has to do at this very important point in the law is ask herself if this project was to go ahead, what impact could it have on matters of national environmental significance? And that can be directly. So it can be because the project itself is a project that will burn coal. So that could be like a power plant. Or it can be under the law and it's written in the legislation itself. It can be an indirect impact. And there's a kind of a complicated test for how you work out whether something is or isn't an indirect impact. And there is nothing in the law that says that because the coal is burnt overseas, when we've dug it up from the earth in Australia, that it is not an indirect impact. And that's an important part of the reconsideration application that Ecosect is bringing. Vivian, just on that, I mean, it, this is not a, a legal response to that at all, but just among ourselves, we think it's a, a lazy argument uh, to say, well, we're not responsible for the scope three emissions. Lazy because what else are they going to do with the coal over there? People aren't popping it in there uh, on their mantles. And we just among ourselves, we talk about it as the drug dealer's defence. You know, if we don't provide this toxic substance, somebody else will. But there is no doubt of what is going to happen to that 
those exports once they leave our shores. So it's, it's, it's lazy, I think, to say, well, it's not our problem. We don't have anything to do with it. And as Holly has pointed out, we have everything to do with it because it comes back and affects the way our fires burn, the temperature of the water that the Great Barrier Reef is bathing in, the habitat for all these threatened and endangered species that a minister is obliged to protect. Yeah. The last environment minister famously challenged a court ruling that she had a duty of care. And we followed this story quite a lot last year. It was a duty of care to future generations and the case was brought by some school children. And she challenged that in court. There were people in Canberra burning a baby's pram in front of the parliament. People went up and wrote duty of care in big red letters all over the walls of the um, environment minister's office. How, how are we creating a space for her to be, you know, a, a, a winner? compared to the previous minister? Uh, I, I guess those cases you've talked about, the, the one you talked about of the young people, that wasn't a case in law. There wasn't a provision that the minister is legally required to protect future generations. So that was what the, the, the justice determined in that. But in the case that we've prepared with EJA, it is in existing legislation. So we're really pointing that out to the minister that she will be fulfilling her obligation to consider these matters of national environmental significance because the legislation is the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act and it's already a requirement which hasn't been acknowledged mm -hmm. and we're saying you do need to acknowledge it. So we feel as though we've, we've opened a pathway for the minister uh, to show her the way that she will fulfil this obligation if she reconsiders these proposals that we've put forth. So you're saying that in the Act, the EPBC Act, it's already yes. a provision that she must consider climate, climate impacts? I no. Might uh, go ahead, Holly, yes. Yeah, Vivian, I might answer just because, actually, Christine is incredibly well-versed in the EPBC Act, but maybe I can... Um, help just with the legal context. So, um, no, that, that's one of the things that's often talked about with the EPBC Act, that the word climate change doesn't appear once. What does appear in the Act and what is incredibly clear is what Christine's saying, which is that there's a requirement on the Minister to take these reconsideration applications and determine them. And when she does that, the single question she has to ask herself which ECOSEC really invites the minister to take seriously and to act on is what could, if these projects went ahead, what could they harm of all of these living wonders? And so sometimes people can be uncertain about like, are you just writing a letter with a lot of evidence attached? It, it, it's not that. It's actually that the law already provides this entry point. And I've heard Christine talk about it in quite a beautiful way before and to say that ECOSEC is using this provision to open the door and they're asking for the minister to walk through it with them and with a number of other people across the country who are also asking for her to listen to the science that is set out there in the evidence and act on the basis of it. Hooray! 3CR 
look, in coming months, the Environment Minister will be legally obliged to seek comments from the public about these requests to reconsider the climate harm to our national living wonders posed by the 19 gas and coal projects. So um, perhaps Holly, can you tell listeners how they can use your website to bombard her with comments and requests? Um, yeah, no worries at all, Vivian. Um, and I guess that's the other thing actually about um, making space for the minister. It's really not about necessarily bombarding her, but actually just with sharing as a member of the Australian public um, your views. And I think the minister said a couple of different times, even since the election, that she's really wanting to listen to people. So this is a really clear opportunity for her to listen. Um, so that's right. Um, Ecosec have worked with some um, incredible other people. So there are some people who've really come forward, sort of taking Christine's thunder here a little bit, but there's five incredible people who've kind of had experience of watching these climate impacts on matters of national environmental significance, and they're really standing with Ecosec. Um, and if you go to the website, there's a really clear way that just as a member of the public, you can read about the stories of the five friends of the living wonders. Um, and also, um, you, some of those people are taking particular actions or inviting the public to take particular actions. There's also there, if you're from the scientific community, it's not something that EJA is responsible for running, but the Climate Council is also putting together an incredible scientist letter to the Minister in support of the reconsideration requests. And you'll see a similar kind of a letter that's being advocated on behalf of a 15-year-old young person, Emma Hying. 3CR. Listeners, many of you have written submissions before and you've attended public hearings. I've been to the ones on the Independent Planning Authority. And I, I love them. I thought at the first few runs that I went to, I thought, how democratic this is, how terrific. And then one of the lawyers came up to me and said, it's all theatre, you know. They'll pass it, pass the project. I was shocked. You know, I was new in this, wheel, in this world of climate action. But once I heard a scientist describe in great detail how migratory birds fly all the way from Siberia to, a net, to nest around Newcastle, and it has now become the biggest coal port in the world, but those birds are hardwired to come there. And the proposal was to extend the coal port even further out. I was moved by the thought of this bird exhausted and hungry, arriving only to find all its habitat gone. But the IPA was not moved and they passed that extension of the port. So I want to read to you listeners about one Ramsar wetland near to you in Melbourne, if you're listening. It's from the Living Wonders Vault of Knowledge. And then I'm going to ask Christine and Holly the effect that all this information they've gathered has been, what's the effect, and even just reading it, what's the effect on you? And will it move other peoples to make new decisions, to write the future differently? So this is from the Living Wonders. You can learn that Lake Albacuta, it's about 400 kilometres north of Melbourne Northwest, it's a Ramsar listed wetland. It alternates between wet and dry and it's a home of climax communities in New South Wales and Victoria. When it's dry the lake is home to grasslands and terrestrial wildlife but when the lake has water it supports enormous breeding 
water bird populations and a developing aquatic community. It's home to the nationally vulnerable Regent's parrot and the rare freckled duck. The lake also features in Jarkil Balek stories as Nal Bagaja, the place where Pura the kangaroo fed on bitter quandongs while fleeing from Wembulan the spider. So that takes us back centuries and eons, doesn't it? That place has been a sacred place or an important place for people and for this wildlife. But in the report, it says climate change is a key threat to this Lake Albacuta. The potential impacts are reduced frequency, duration, and even the extent of flooding and interference with migration and reproduction. There'll be a decline in the eucalyptic, eucalypt woodland and the water quality for birds. I guess the first thing that compiling the evidence did to me was it made me appreciate in a new granular detail the extent of the climate risk um, and how important it is to take action. And the second thing that this body of work working for Ecosec has done for me is make me more determined than I have ever been um, that the only thing that there is to do now is for governments and ministers like Minister Klibasek, but not just the minister, to listen to the science and to act accordingly. It would be very easy to feel despair when you read uh, the overwhelming evidence and look at what we stand to lose. But I would implore your listeners, don't despair, get active. You know, uh, contact us via that website that Vivian's been telling you about. Uh, when there's a window of opportunity to make a comment, uh, the minister will have to give us a 10-day period to comment on, on what she's thinking about these proposals. And we'd, we'd, we would ask all of you to make a comment from the heart. Now, get active. That's what we want the minister to do too, is to listen to the science and act. It's no time for wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth. We <laughs> must act. <laughs> well, I love gnashing my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to our guests today, Christine Carlisle from the Environment Council of Central Queensland and Holly Kerwin from the EJA. Please check out the 3CR podcast page for links to the Living Wonders website, which contains letters that you can sign if you are a scientist, and another letter if you, like me, have been enchanted by the possibility of giving Tanya Plibersek another chance to be a heroine of climate action. Well, you've done a great job with it, Vivian. You've understood exactly what it's all about and, and I think you've portrayed it very well in your comment today so. as well. So. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. You can find the podcast with the link to Living Wonders at 3CR Climate Action Show. I'm very grateful to Christine Carlisle and Holly Kerwin who told us about their legal action to get the Environment Minister to reconsider the 19 coal and gas projects on her desk. And thank you to Tamba Project for the music called Our Song. A special thanks to Professor Jacqueline Troy from Sydney University and from the Snowy Mountains region. As Gary Snyder, the great poet and environmentalist said, don't dwell in guilty or angry attitudes. If you want to take action, take it because you love the world. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal.
Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR.